some of the the ideas, the things that are being rolled out, the technologies, the approaches that we've got are really inspiring. And you see that actually there's this kind of tide of hope and of real deep-seated feeling that if we can pull off these kind of transformations, then actually, you know, European society will be much the better for it. Welcome to This New Climate, an acclimatised podcast about the innovations that could transform our world as we enter a new era of climate instability. Hello, my name's Will Bugler and welcome to a brand new podcast brought to you by Acclimatise. It's called This New Climate and it will explore some of the toughest problems as we enter a new climatic era and tell the stories of the projects and people who are grappling with them. The climate that has given rise to civilization as we know it is changing. The climate of the future will be very different from that of the past. This has huge implications for how we grow food, where we live, how we move around, how we communicate, the way we build infrastructure, and indeed for the ecosystems on which we and the rest of life on Earth depend. So this show asks, what will this new climate look like? And how are we to prepare for it? One thing that we do know is that climate change is already underway and that the past is therefore no longer a good guide to the future. Humanity is taking a step into the unknown. The first series of this new climate will explore ideas connected to deep innovation, ideas that are transformative and have the potential to fundamentally change the way we do things. To do this, we've been working with a very special organisation. Climate Kick is the EU's main climate innovation initiative, supported by the European Institute of Innovation and Technology. And its remit is to support innovations that can help tackle climate change. Over the course of this six-episode series, we're featuring Climate Kick-supported innovation projects that aim to address five pressing climate challenges. Water scarcity, access and availability of climate data, climate risks in cities, climate risks to agriculture, and supply chain risks. But in this first episode, we want to introduce you to Climate Kick itself. It's important to get to know Climate Kick for many reasons. First off, they're great people, and they're doing things that few others are doing in ways that even fewer others are. But also, in order to really understand the projects that we present in the other episodes, it's good to first understand Climate Kick's approach to innovation. I think the thing that I'm most proud of about Climate Kick is that we have managed in the space of relatively few years to mobilise a large number of people, of organisations, of students, of startups behind Europe's climate challenge. So there are many thousands of people now working together with Climate Kick that see Climate Kick as a community that has a plan and a vision and that offers us a a kind of a wonderful resource and hope that we can do something at scale. Sorry, I should have introduced you. So I'm Dr Tom Mitchell. I am the Chief Strategy Officer at Climate Kick. Tom is in charge of Climate Kick's overall strategy, business planning and financial sustainability. Established by the European Institute of Innovation and Technology in 2010, Climate Kick is Europe's largest innovation initiative focused on tackling climate change. And it sits at the heart of a network of over 300 partner organisations that are working to find solutions to complex climate challenges. Climate Kick is a wonderful example of of an organisation and a community really trying new things, pushing the boundaries, 
challenging kind of current assumptions and looking at uh, new ways of doing things through innovation. So look, fundamentally, Climate Kick is a community built around the hope that we can change whole systems through innovation. And the reason to change whole systems is because, frankly, we're not doing enough and are working quickly enough to decarbonize and build resilience. And a community of organizations drawn from business, from the public sector, from research organizations working together with purpose and with a deliberate approach have the ability to bring new ideas into the systems on which we rely and in a way that does create the potential for very rapid change towards that decarbonization and resilience we need. As Tom mentioned, Climate Kick is looking to change whole systems, not just make small adjustments to the way we currently do things. It's an approach that has been moulded and developed as the organisation has grown and as the scale of the climate challenge has become more apparent. When the kicks were established formally in 2010, they were given the mandate to create jobs in Europe through innovation, to build the skills and capability of European society to be entrepreneurial and to start to bring together communities of organisations across Europe who had the trust between them to work together on new approaches. Now, when Tom says the kicks, he's talking about knowledge and innovation communities. Climate Kick is one of six kicks established by the European Institute for Innovation and Technology, or EIT for short. The European Commission and the European Parliament, for example, was getting very concerned in the mid-2000s that Europe, while it had a real global leadership position around research, for example, or around leading universities, it wasn't managing to translate that leadership into the kind of business growth, business creation that we were seeing in other parts of the world. And so Europe, for example, wasn't creating the kind of new industries that Silicon Valley was creating. And then European policymakers started scratching their head thinking about, well, how can Europe uh, really start to tackle this challenge and decided that they would create an institution within Europe called the European Institute for Innovation and Technology. Now, EIT was very deliberately chosen as a counterpart to MIT in the US with the idea that you could um, establish this kind of nerve centre around which Europe could transform its current situation. To stimulate innovation in order to create economic growth and jobs in Europe was the primary driver of Climate Kick's activities in the early years. And they were good at it. To date, Climate Kick has created over 2,000 jobs and leveraged over $2.5 billion in climate funding. But then they asked, Fundamentally, is that the right approach to tackling climate change? And they concluded that putting investment and jobs first was not the right approach. They found that the implications of this strategy was to identify promising innovations that they knew could attract investment, but that didn't allow for the transformative thinking that was needed to really change the way the world operates. Putting investment and jobs front and centre meant that you tended to preference those kind of single point product research and development approaches, and that you tended to think very much around the current financial and economic system which fundamentally is the one that's created the climate change challenge in the first place. It's not that this uh, job creation aspect isn't important and wealth creation is important, but can we really understand 
if that is the approach that's going to help us tackle climate change? Or should we try a different approach, which is this one that's much more systemic, to think about the kind of system shifts that we need, and then think about job creation and wealth creation in a new system that is compatible with the kind of society that we need to live in if we're going to tackle climate change. Pivoting their approach to put tackling climate change at the heart of their mission allowed Climate Kick to very quickly realise that they needed to find ways of stimulating deep innovation that can lead to systemic change at scale. It is doing this by focusing on innovation across four thematic areas. Production systems, urban transitions, land use and decision metrics and finance. We'll return to these themes later in the episode, but first we ask, why is it that the climate challenge in particular requires the kind of systemic change that is at the heart of Climate Kick's approach? Let me just take Europe as a case example. The Paris Agreement says that we need to limit global warming to two degrees and ideally to 1.5 degrees. For Europe, that would mean to be net zero carbon, so not effectively emitting carbon to the atmosphere, by 2035. Now that effectively means if you've got a child who's going to school this year for the first time at the age of four or five, they need to leave school or university into a net zero Europe, one that looks radically different from from where it is now. Achieving that kind of transformation is not going to be uh, possible just with uh, producing the next invention or the next shiny thing or the, the next generation of electric car. That's not enough. The scale of the climate challenge is indeed enormous. Just over a month ago, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, issued its special report on 1.5 degrees C. It made for grim reading. The world today is a little over one degree warmer than pre-industrial times, and already we are seeing significant climate impacts, including severe droughts and water shortages, intense hurricanes and flood events, and changes to growing seasons for crops. There really is no safe level of climate change. However, governments at the Paris Climate Change Conference in 2015 agreed to try and keep temperatures to less than 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, or if not, definitely below 2 degrees. The recent IPCC report shows just how difficult this is going to be, with the UN saying that urgent and unprecedented changes are needed to reach the target. By mid-century, a shift to the lower goal would require a supercharged rollback of emission sources that have built up over the past 250 years. There are several pathways to achieving the 1.5 degrees C target, which is still theoretically possible. But essential to all of them are shifts to electric transport systems and greater adoption of carbon capture technology. However, the greenhouse gas emissions reductions required are huge. Carbon dioxide emissions would have to be cut by 45% by 2030 and come down to zero by 2050. And the world is simply not currently on track to meet these targets. According to Sean Lockie, director of Climate Kick's urban transitions theme. We are not on track to meet the one and a half degree trajectory by 2050. And actually, if you look at the science, we really should be bringing that date forward to 2035. I mean, we are woefully not on track. So this is where incremental change just isn't going to get us there. So that's why we've put all our faith into taking more of a systemic view. And a strategic entrepreneur 
or an entity that does whole system analysis and whole system change, we think is makes us unique. The stakes are also very high. Missing the 1.5 degree C target by just half a degree would mean that by the end of the century, the global population exposed to water stress could be 50% higher. Hundreds of millions of more people could be trapped in poverty. Almost all coral reef ecosystems would be lost. More severe heat waves, droughts and other extreme events would threaten life and livelihoods of people around the world. Humanity is in a race against time to solve these pressing problems. The IPCC estimates we've got about 12 years to act in order to have any chance of meeting the 1.5 degree C target. And the innovations that can rise to such a huge challenge are just not currently emerging quickly enough, even in regions like Europe, which consider themselves to be global leaders on climate change. Here's Tom Mitchell again. If we're going to tackle climate change at the speed and scale we need, Europe is well behind where it needs to be. There is a certain amount of, I think, burying the head in the sand type logic that, you know, Europe's already taken a leadership role and that's enough. It's not enough. And we see that again and again. And the the type of summer that we had with forest fires and extreme heat across Europe is that kind of warning sign. Why do we need new innovations to tackle climate change? Simply put, it's because the scale of the challenge demands it. Daniel Zimmer, director of the land use theme at Climate Kick, puts it best. As many people say, you cannot change the world using the same model as the one that has been used to create it. So we, um, we definitely need to develop new solutions. How Climate Kick does this is to position itself at the cutting edge of new innovation and research in order to find those solutions that can make the biggest difference. We are different from innovation funds that could be seen from outside bit comparable, although they even have more money. But we are even more upstream, very close to the research, very close to the areas where new knowledge is created and where often people are not yet interested to take risks and to develop into clear businesses. So our mission is really to take new ideas, new solutions, and try to embed them in systems where we can develop adequate um, business models in order to uh, scale them. Because at the moment, what is missing is not the good solutions, is very much the capacity to scale these solutions. And so what we do in Climate Kick is really try to take the good ideas and incubate them into uh, investable products uh, that can really have an impact. This approach is born out of a way of thinking about innovation that's very different from most organisations. Climate Kick is not interested in single-point innovations that can only affect change to a limited extent. Tom Mitchell. The idea that research labs or people in universities look at developing new ideas those new ideas can be turned into new products and services and that they can then be developed to a point that they reach the market and receive investment and scale is very much the core of the innovation logic that has permeated for the last few decades. Climate Kick, though, is on a quest for deep innovation, changes that can revolutionise rather than evolve. We're thinking of innovation quite differently, which is innovation in the way whole systems work. So, for example, the way we 
we move around, our kind of mobility, or the way we live in our homes, the kind of energy efficiency of our homes, or the way in which we choose to work, for example, by commuting, or the way in which we shop, you know, the supply chains from around the world that, that bring food to our tables. They're the kind of systems that are going to need to shift if we are going to be able to decarbonize and build resilience quick enough. Innovation at that level means experimenting, bringing new ideas and new approaches to multiple levers of change within systems, whether it's, for example, the policies and regulations that we have, whether it's the technologies we use, whether it's the approach to finance, how we choose to invest in different things, whether it's the way communities engage and the way in which we consider what's valuable and important to us. A systems approach to supporting innovation means that Climate Kick thinks quite differently about the challenge of adapting to climate change and building resilience to its impacts. Over the past 20 years or so, the prevailing approach to adaptation has been to identify a set of climate-related risks or hazards, like extreme weather events, for example, and then take a proactive approach to dealing with those specific risks through targeted adaptation measures, like building a flood barrier or planting a different type of crop, for example. The way that we've tended to tackle that challenge is to say, well, all adaptation is local. We need to understand what the options are for adaptation, and then we support those adaptations through projects. That's tended to be the main kind of theory of change that we've taken. This approach to adaptation is also called a projectized approach, as it relies on many individual localised adaptation projects designed to tackle specific challenges. While a projectized approach may be effective at delivering specific adaptation measures that can make a piece of infrastructure, for instance, more able to cope with shocks and stresses that climate change might bring, it is limited in affecting change at a larger scale. As Tom explains, many of the root causes of climate vulnerability are a result of multiple factors, such as government policy or community relationships and the behaviour of individuals, and these operate at multiple scales, from the local to the national and regional levels. So let's just take one very concrete example. In Europe, we had a lot of challenge with flooding over the past few years. In the UK, for example, we had quite significant flooding around London a few years ago and and a number of cities. Um, We often get those in the kind of autumn heavy rain periods. And one of the reasons for that is because the common agricultural policy provides a set of incentives to farmers in the UK to keep their land clear, essentially, to not grow things, to not reforest, and therefore it increases the speed of runoff reduces the ability for that vegetation to absorb water and therefore increases the total uh, uh, storm potential damage. So the UK's flooding issues are not going to be dealt with by small-scale adaptation measures to reduce flood impacts, while structural issues like the common agricultural policy are providing strong disincentives to taking the necessary steps for action at a much broader level. Now where climate kick comes in is to think about adaptation as a systemic challenge, as one that has different barriers, has different drivers of change, and that we need innovation in a way that works up and down whole governance systems, whole value chains, whole supply chains, and therefore in a way that can tackle some of those adaptation problems simultaneously in a way that does unlock then the ability for local people to make the kind of choices that they need to make to adapt to the risks that they face. 
Operating at this systemic level, of course, comes with its own set of barriers and challenges, and identifying opportunities for interventions that can foster widespread change is far from easy. Tom's clear that no one has all the answers as to how best to approach this. So at the moment, I think we've not, as a a global community, got the approach right. I'm not saying Climate Kick has the magic bullet, but I think we've got an opportunity to test a new way of thinking about adaptation from a systems lens that gives us a better chance than we've had to date. Catalyzing widespread systems level change to solve the climate crisis. What a great idea. If only we'd thought of this earlier, right? Well, in reality, it's an idea that's been around for a long time. The main trouble is, it's really difficult to achieve. The real challenge for Climate Kick, then, does not lie in the theory, but how to put it into practice. And the idea of systems innovation, as I've just described, has been around for some time, but the challenge always is, well, great, nice ideas, but what does it really mean in practice? At Climate Kick, we've been thinking really hard about this and the way in which we can approach it. And we've got a plan. That's not to say it's the right plan, but it's a plan that we will be testing and experimenting with. Climate Kick's plan moves away from trying to determine effective adaptation responses to predefined risks and instead is based on collaborative experimentation. There are essentially three main pillars to this approach. The first being an active and diverse community of organisations all working together. The reason why that makes a big difference is it gives us a possibility to amplify changes quickly. So if one organisation has you know, thousands of employees, each of them talking to many other people outside, and that we work with you know, 350 or more of Europe's key change makers, changing organisations, then we have the opportunity to touch many people and to do so in a way that gives us the potential for exponential shift. Secondly, Climate Kick has done a lot of careful analysis to find the points where systemic change might take hold. Understanding how complex systems operate is very difficult indeed. By identifying people or organisations that are highly influential within a system and have agency, Climate Kick is able to leverage its position to great effect. We need to look for those parts of the world, those cities, regions, companies, states that want to be part of this kind of transformative solution. And so we're looking to address that demand by offering the potential for Climate Kick to work directly with those places or with those companies to drive a whole kind of community innovation approach into that ambition. So, for example, uh, we're working together with the country of Slovenia and the government in Slovenia to look at how we turn Slovenia from where it is now into one of the world's leading circular economy, zero waste societies, but to do so in a way that creates jobs and growth at the same time and does so in record time. The third pillar of the approach is a commitment to experimentation through a process of what Climate Kit calls rapid prototyping. Essentially, a test-and-learn approach that encourages support of new ideas and is relaxed about the fact that not all of them will come off. These three pillars then, community, influence and experimentation, taken together, makes this approach nimble, allows many new ideas to be tested simultaneously and allows resources to be deployed quickly in support of ideas that appear to have traction. We are deploying the systems innovation approach through 
experimentation in the system. So what we do to start with is to say, okay, this mobility system that we have across Europe or in any one country or in any one city has a particular form at the moment, and it's driven by particular forces, whether they be finance or policy or technology or big companies and others, or by the way in which the market is working. And we say, right, let's map those systems very carefully to think about where the drivers of change might be. But what it means is if we do that, we map those systems, we understand those intervention points, we look at where innovation can make a real difference, then our community, our 350 organizations, plus all those that they work with, we can design deliberate experiments across those systems that help us to shift practices and outcomes. Taking a systems lens has freed Climate Kick in some ways. Out of necessity, the organisation has put experimentation and learning at the heart of what it does, as there are few certainties when dealing with these large, complex systems that change frequently. Climate Kick therefore supports innovation and new technologies, but recognises that on its own this is not enough, and only by putting these in the context of wider policy and regulatory frameworks will we be able to stimulate the kind of behavioural shift that can really make a difference. Climate Kick is therefore not so much an investor in innovative ideas as a kind of innovation laboratory for systems change. So where does Climate Kick begin to narrow down its focus from changing all the systems? Well, if you were paying close attention earlier, you'd have heard me say that they focus their efforts on four thematic areas. Production systems, urban transitions, land use and decision metrics and finance. But why these four areas? What was special about these themes that made them more deserving than other important areas of climate change? Energy, for instance. So the decision to to select these four, and obviously there are other areas, uh, such as the oceans and ice, water, uh, hydrological cycles, which could have been areas of focus, was, I guess, very strategic. That's Scott Williams, director of the Decision Metrics and Finance theme. The majority of investment and the majority of activity to address uh, and start to change the direction of society and economies in relation to climate change was going to happen within cities, within urban environments. A fundamental real-world challenge was uh, in relation to land use, including forests, uh, arable land, and also land use within urban environments. The opportunity to change from a linear to circular economy offered significant pivot points and sort of strategic catalyst points within the uh, materials-based economy to have very large-scale impact. And then to underpin all of those three was a change in the way that uh, both risk was understood and processed through the system. So, as Scott just explained, these four interconnected areas are crucial to tackling climate challenges and they're closely connected, allowing work in one area to impact and influence the work of the other areas. Selecting these four areas was also important because they represented areas where Climate Kick felt their support could have the greatest potential impact. Given that we are stewards of European taxpayer money, and that given we are Europe's kind of leading innovation agency focused on exclusively on climate change, then actually what we shouldn't be doing is working in those areas where we're already seeing considerable progress where the market forces are already taking on. So, for example, around uh, wind or solar energy, 
there's so many people working in those areas with such a dynamic market now that it doesn't need a public sector organization to be stimulating innovation in those areas the market has taken over. Instead, the thought is that given climate change needs action on multiple fronts simultaneously across pretty much all areas of society, we will focus on some of the harder aspects of that, pick some of the the systems and, and areas of society where we've not seen progress on decarbonization or on strengthened resilience over the last decades, and that actually we need innovation to unlock change in some of these areas. Each of Climate Kick's thematic areas plays an important role in fighting climate change and its impacts. And throughout the rest of this first series of This New Climate, we'll be looking at some of the innovative projects that contribute to these themes. The themes are also highly interconnected, which is epitomised by the decision metrics and finance theme led by Scott Williams. He explains why it is so crucial to shifting the needle on climate action. We live in a financialised civilization. The ability to accumulate stocks of financial wealth conveys the ability to project power. And we still see that through the realisation of the G7 and the G20. The accumulated financial wealth over potentially decades, centuries, even millennia, still allowing for the ability to project power above and beyond uh, either the social or ecological resource base of a country. This financialised system allows countries such as the UK or the Netherlands, for example, to exert power over global development, value chains and the environment that is disproportionate to their physical size and population. The inevitable question then is, is this financial system compatible with combating climate change and staying within other environmental limits? For Scott, the answer is clearly not right now. The mismatch is becoming increasingly obvious that the way that financial decisions are made is uh, insulated from the impacts of those decisions. The flip side of that is the enormous potential for a fundamental change with potentially very small interventions and small interventions that I'm thinking of here, the pension industry being one. Pension industry has uh, around 30 to $40 trillion of assets under management globally. How can we put some of the liquidity within the pension industry to work to actually be able to resolve some of the near-term challenges? How indeed? Well, for Scott, he sees great potential in enhancing the inherent self-interest of the financial system. Climate risks, both physical risks to investments and also transition risks, which are risks to investments stemming from the transition away from a high-carbon society, which will make investments in fossil fuels, for example, less attractive. We'll begin to exert more pressure on parts of the financial system that invest over longer periods of time. The pensions industry being a prime example. A large-scale shift in investment away from fossil fuels and companies that are ill-prepared for climate impacts or investors that demand more action from companies to prepare for climate instability could lead to a seismic shift in behaviour across all sectors of the economy. This makes financial services a particularly strategic and cross-cutting area in relation to Climate Kick's other themes. It's an enabler or a destroyer of potential across those three categories of real-world implementation. So the other three themes are really looking at the objective reality. How can we change the bricks and mortar construction? How can we change the way 
people are able to live their lives uh, in a lower carbon, more sustainable, regenerative way within cities? How can we actually manage our soils better to capture carbon, to be able to produce the food that we need? These are real world, tangible, objective challenges that we face. Whereas the financial system, the ability to change people's relationship with money and the way that money is deployed for real world impacts and start to both align the financial system with the underlying natural system and with social systems, and then to actually connect decision makers more effectively to uh, be more accountable and more responsible for the full range of impacts, both in cities in terms of the impact of land and the impact uh, in relation to circular economy, waste, pollution, and other current issues that we're facing in relation to the way that we dig stuff out of the ground, make stuff, use stuff, and then dispose of it. Later in the series, we'll be hearing how Climate Kick-supported projects on decision metrics and finance are helping insurers to better price and understand climate risk. So listen out for that in the coming weeks. One area where the behaviour of the financial system is especially important for stimulating systemic change is in relation to cities. We're not going to get anywhere unless we can convince our finance colleagues that they need to do things in a different way, take more of a whole-life approach to project feasibility and preparation. That's Sean Lockie again. He heads up the Urban Transitions theme and explains how approaches to investment really need to shift in order to allow cities to develop infrastructure that properly accounts for climate risk. There's still very much a big fixation on the capital cost and very low paybacks, so sort of three to five years, which make it very difficult to get the kind of deep transformation that we're sort of looking to. The implications of investors looking for a quick payback on their capital investment makes it much harder to find finance for adaptation measures which have benefits that accrue over longer timescales. Climate Kick is therefore looking to support models that can push that out to 20 to 25 year payback timescales and shift significantly the size of the investment in urban systems. Its focus on this area is driven by the huge opportunity for rapid changes to be made in cities. Urban areas uh, are really the hotspots. That's where the concentration of resource depletion and greenhouse gases are concentrated. It's the concentration of human life in cities that makes them so important. As Sean says, they use resources and are concentrated greenhouse gas emitters. They're also home to large numbers of people, with 3 million people moving from rural to urban areas per week, according to UN figures. Europe's urban population stands now at over 70%. As I mentioned, also, you've got finance concentrated in cities. That's where all the banks and institutions are located. So they have an interest in protecting their own communities. That's where our best education minds, our best Bright, bright minds are located. So you can see the opportunity that cities have in their concentration, not only of the resource, but finance, their proximity in terms of density really allows for a concentration of efforts. Climate Kick also sees opportunities to leverage the concentrated potential for change in cities, thanks to their relative power and autonomy. The city municipality has a certain amount of autonomy from the nation state. These big cities are able in many instances like London and New York and Berlin and Copenhagen, they're able to 
make some of their own decisions without uh, needing support buy-in from the nation states. The ability to work directly with decision makers who have agency at the municipal level makes it possible to bring about change more quickly than working at the national level, where policy making is often far more complicated and slow moving. Adaptation measures in cities also have the advantage of being very visible and can make obvious changes to the urban landscape and to people's quality of life, something that is very useful when trying to get change accepted by communities themselves. Say you take the typical street in a typical suburb and it's, you know, it's a black tarmac road and you know, it's got some sidewalks and, and, the, and then it's got the buildings. If you can sell the vision to the people that live there that that's the before, here's the after, permeable surfaces, surfaces that actually have flora and fauna built into them, we'll be bringing through tree-lined streets that provide shading to the housing, etc. And by providing you with a tree-lined street, and, you know, we have some evidence that says that your, your house price will go up by 10%, then you have something very tangible that a community can kind of latch onto. We'll take a closer look at some of the innovations that are doing just that in an upcoming episode, exploring how so-called nature-based solutions can help make cities more resilient to the impacts of climate change. These solutions rely to a large part on changing the spaces within cities to incorporate more vegetation and waterways. Changing the physical environment has a big impact on people's ability to deal with climate instability. Climate Kick's land use theme takes this principle to a much wider scale. Daniel Zimmer directs the organisation's work in this area. Land is, if I may say, the first recipient of all climate disorders. So um, as soon as you have uh, increased droughts or uh, uh, more inundations, uh, the land is, of course, obviously uh, affected. And moreover, if I may say, the way we use the land has a tendency to increase the risks. Human activity in changing land use, reducing tree cover, paving over grasslands and ploughing soils has changed the way land responds to periods of heavy rain, for instance, increasing the risk of flash flooding. Um, so this is a, a very uh, tangible um, effect of uh, misutilization or degradation of soils. If you think of drought, the way, again, you, you manage the organic matter and so the carbon content in, so in soils has an impact on their water storage capacity and hence on the, uh, on the resistance of crops to drought. So there are a lot of areas where uh, land use has a potential to reduce the impact of a number of climatic disorders. And this is indeed another area that we are addressing with Climate Kick uh, through a number of projects. These projects include a wide range of innovations in climate smart agriculture, some of which we will feature later in the series. The potential of land use to help the world meet the 1.5 degree Paris target is also frequently overlooked, according to Daniel. So land use is really for me, sort of the hidden part of the climate change debate at the moment, which focuses very much on energy and on energy efficiency, on transforming uh, the energy production. Land 
is a major sink term for the greenhouse gas we produce. Well, there are two sink terms on our planet, uh, the ocean and the continental ecosystems, and they are of equal order of magnitude, 8 to 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. For reference, the entire energy use in the United States was responsible for around 5 gigatons of CO2 in 2017. Obviously, the way we use the land is extremely critical for uh, the CO2 cycle, uh, or the carbon cycle on, on our planet. Not only is this important, but we also see that at the moment, agriculture uh, is not using the potential of the ecosystem to store carbon, but on the contrary, is emitting a lot of greenhouse gases. So we need to change this. And we can change this. Just storing a very little amount of carbon in every square meter of land. And uh, the specialists say that only an increase of 0.4% in the carbon content every year in agricultural soils uh, would be enough to compensate the entire global emissions of CO2. What's clear when speaking to the directors of each of the thematic areas is that Climate Kick is committed to delivering impacts at scale. They all talk of widespread fundamental change in the way financial systems and value chains work, or cities and land use are managed. But taking innovation to scale is a particularly difficult thing to do. Many people at the moment are struggling with, we know we have a number of solutions, There is enough money in certain places. The problem is that how to scale this and reach a level where projects or uh, an initiative is uh, investable or is is really something very difficult. So in Climate Kick, I think we need to play a role here. It's uh, this incubation of solutions that can be impactful and that are scalable, and try to progressively bridge the gap with uh, the large funding that is available with investors, because if we do not invest at the required scale to change the way the systems function, then we will go nowhere. The gap that Daniel refers to here is where Climate Kick concentrates most of its efforts, funding good ideas that have huge potential but are not mature enough to be considered investable by traditional investors. There is an assumption by the sort of uh, international community of innovators that if you have a good innovation, then the invisible hand of the market will take care of it. So there will be customers and it will come. uh, The market will pick this innovation and help deploy it. This is not the case. I I don't believe uh, in this uh, at all, especially in areas where we are uh, a bit more disruptive or where you are um, struggling against the classical business models. Bridging this investment gap is about more than just money, though. According to Tom Mitchell, there are three main things that are needed to take innovations to scale. You know, one, of course, is a great idea. You know, you need to have something that captures imagination. The second thing is you need to have 
a certain amount of testing and kind of robustness in that testing to give people confidence that this is a, a solution or approach that can work in different places and have the evidence to back that. In Climate Kick's experience, there is no shortage of promising innovative ideas and they provide support in order to test them and prove the concepts work. However, a good idea on its own is not enough. You also need, and probably most critically, a team of great people. And those team of great people need to work really well together. They need to be convincing. They can't just be the kind of mad scientist with the kind of invention or approach. They need to be people with business acumen, with marketing skills, often with kind of legal and, and patent insights, people who know how to run business processes. Actually getting the team right uh, is probably one of the trickiest and most challenging parts of this overall approach. What Tom is driving at here is that the idea needs a team behind it that lends it credibility. As a leading funder of climate innovation in Europe, Climate Kick support already gives confidence to investors and sitting at the heart of a wide network of organisations and individuals means Climate Kick is in a good position to make connections. And then, of course, you need investors, investors and people willing to put money behind things that allow you to make those big transitions. Climate Kick helps some of that by putting in public money to help reduce the risk to those investors. But ultimately, you need large chunks of money if you're going to move from those kind of local contexts to a much bigger deployment. Okay, so it's not all about money, but it does play a big role. And finding investors is particularly difficult when it comes to innovations in adaptation and resilience. And in the adaptation and resilience space, to be very honest, there are very few investors who specialise in this area, who understand some of the nature of the market or the challenges, and necessarily willing to put in the larger amounts of money needed to take things to scale. So one of the things that Climate Kick is working on is to build the nature of kind of investor communities in this area to make sure that we can work with them to understand the kind of risk climate risk landscape and therefore build the confidence that they have in in making investments, in, in scaling such approaches. But to be honest, you need all of those things working together, and it's tough to do. This really highlights the value of Climate Kick's approach. In a world where innovations in climate change adaptation are not being picked up by traditional investors, innovators need help. And that needs to come from an organisation willing to experiment and take risks, and importantly, persevere. Climate Kick's commitment to systemic innovation means that it has eschewed the easy paths and quick wins that might have only limited impact and instead has set itself on a quest for deep innovation that has the potential to transform. Tom remains fearful about the scale of the climate challenge and the amount of time we have for these changes to take hold, but is lifted by the people that are working so tirelessly to change the course of history. Some of the, the ideas, the things that are being rolled out, the technologies, the approaches that we've got are really inspiring. And it gives you a sense that you only need to listen to a small part of the Climate Kick community present its ideas at any one point. And you see that actually there's this kind of tide of hope and of you know, real deep-seated feeling that if we can pull off these kind of transformations, then actually you know, European society will be much the better for it and that we can start to think about prosperity in the context of an economy and a society that we know is is sustainable so if we can harness that power 
then we've got a great chance of, of really meeting the challenge that faces us. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Over the next five episodes, we'll introduce you to some of the innovators that Climate Kick is supporting and unpick some of the climate challenges that they're trying to tackle. Our next episode will be in two weeks' time and we'll look at how a new tool is helping to increase our resilience in the face of water scarcity. To make sure you don't miss it, please remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can connect on Twitter at This New Climate and head over to www.acclimatise.uk.com forward slash This New Climate to learn more about this podcast and each of the episodes as they're released. Many thanks to our Climate Kick guests, Tom Mitchell, Daniel Zimmer, Scott Williams and Sean Lockie. Special thanks also to Climate Kick's Ellie Tonks for helping to coordinate our work. This episode was produced by Acclimatise and Climate Kick, hosted by me, Will Bugler, background research and narrative development by Will Bugler, Elisa Jimenez-Alonso and Georgina Wade, and editing and production support from Lower Street. See you next time.